this is a spoiler. You can't listen you know. to this and not have spoilers. Uh, who recommended the fall? Wasn't it me, Laura? I think it was me. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping you wouldn't. I was hoping you'd like go right over that. Mm-hmm. And like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll summarize. The well, fall I'm remembering you. what you said last week about yeah, those yeah, who recommended. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> and, and you don't I have to. I, I'll tell you what, Laura. I loved this book. Oh, good. I good. really. I did too. I mean, I did it too. really hit me. Um, it was, like, it was like a one night read, and uh, it was it was it was something else. Oh, yeah, wonderful. me too. Okay. So Laura, stand up, put your hand <laughs> on your heart, <laughs> give us a stomach. All right. Okay. Um, okay. So, stop me. Well, first of all, I thought one of the ways to get started on the summary would be to um, actually quote from the book itself, because he says something very interesting toward the end of the book about what he was doing, is doing. Thanks. Anyway, this he says here, um, this is, I mean, I don't know, I'm on Kindle, so I'm on page 136. Anyway, he says, so I've been practicing my useful, useful profession at Mexico City for some time. It consists to begin with, as you know from experience, in indulging in public confession as often as possible. I accuse myself up and down. It's not hard, for I now have acquired a memory. But let me point out that I don't accuse myself crudely beating my breast. No, I navigate skillfully, multiplying distinctions and digressions too. In short, I adapt my words to my listener and lead him to go one better. I mingle what concerns me and what concerns others. I choose the features we have in common, the experiences we have endured together, the failings we share, good form, In other words, the man of the hour as he is rife in me and in others. With all that I construct, with all that I construct, with all that I construct a portrait, which is the image of all and of no one. A mask, in short, rather like those carnival masks, which are both lifelike and stylized, so that they they make people say, why, surely I've met him. When the portrait is finished, as it is this evening, I show it with great sorrow. This, alas, is what I am. The prosecutor's charge is finished, but at the same time, the portrait I hold out to my contemporaries becomes a mirror. Anyway, <clears throat> that's sort of my introduction to the summary. Um, Good line. Um, yeah, I love that last one uh, about the mirror. Um, anyway, so this is, as we all know, a, 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 a story or a, 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 I don't know, an adventure, a travel of the primary character who is, Clem- what's his name, Clemente? Clement? Yeah, I think Clement. it's John Baptiste Clement. Clement, right. Uh, um, right, Clemente. And um, it, um, it is his, he meets this gentleman at this bar, which is Mexico City, as I recall, and um, he um, essentially confesses to this gentleman over a period of five days. And he confesses his sins, uh, he confesses as well as his achievements. Um, he worked for a long time in Paris as a prosecutor. I find it fascinating that this is a 
a lawyer that he was who's doing the confessing and it turns out he's a it's a lawyer he's confessing to and it's fast it was fascinating me being a lawyer myself to look at what they're saying about the law versus God and faith um, but anyway so he confesses over the course of these five days all of his sins including you know sleeping with every woman known to man um, and his um, being in love being out of love what love means to him love meant to him which by the way I believe is was Camus' position in real life about love and women, um, uh, and he confesses. Um, you know, it just and also he was a um, a, a a very uh, uh, exceptional prosecutor in Paris. He primarily defended uh, orphans and and women. I mean, I guess people who, the poor who couldn't um, um, provide for themselves, um, and he took great. Um, you know, a great. Uh, he lo I loved the way he he loved himself, in a sense, the way he was so wonderful and good, and providing for the poor, and you know, giving a seat over to someone who needed a seat, and you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then one day, he's walking along the Seine, and he and he, he and this woman jumps into the Seine, um, and uh, he hears the body splash in there, and he does nothing. He hears it, and he does nothing. Um, and he continues to walk away. And this actually, and this is something that is with him all the way through this, um, and is referred to in the last, at the end, and where he says, um, then please tell me what happened to you one night on the quays of the Seine and how you managed to never risk your life. Um, you yourself utter the words that for years have never ceased echoing through my nights and that I shall at last say through your mouth, Oh, young woman, throw yourself into the water again so that I may a second time have the chance of saving both of us. Um, and I think that ultimately, so, you know, in terms of plot, in terms of basic plot, that's what it was. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a confession over a five-day period to this gentleman. Um, but it obviously is primarily a very Christian Catholic document. And as I understand it, um, Camus, it's also a, a, a sort of a, a statement against or maybe an attack against Sartre and the, these aesthetic existentialists um, who have obviously, as Nietzsche says, right, killed God. There is no God. Um, and I think that Camus struggled with that um, because um, – and I think that's part of what this book is, given also that it's his last book too as well. Um, that he struggled with that, you know, walking away from God, walking away from faith, even though, like, he doesn't believe, but he does believe, because he did as a child. So I think that that's another thing that was is a big part of this book. As we know, it's the fall, that refers to the fall of uh, Adam and Eve of man. Um, so it's a, in many ways, it's a very religious document book, and, it, and in many ways, it's not. Take it from there, people. <laughs> Nice summary, thank you. Uh, <laughs> anyway. Yeah, really. Uh, there's there's a couple of um, the the fall of man, of course. I think that the woman jumping off the bridge. It just occurred to me that might also be a part of the title, the fall. And mm -hmm. there there's one titular uh, part of the book where he talks about having these nights where he's uh you know tirelessly dancing and enjoying himself, and he comes to a flash of understanding about humanity and life and like 
the existential situation surrounding all of us. And then there's the morning that comes around, and he says, that's the fall. Is there's, there's one line where he says the fall, and I'm trying to find it here, and it has to do with that morning time, that... that that day, you mean the day after the debauchery? Yeah, yeah. And he's referring to that day, that morning as the fall. Mm-hmm. I see. Rather than yeah, the debauchery itself being the fall. Yes, yes. Mm. I that, thought that, of St. Paul, too, right? Because there's this kind of line of demarcation of his life before the incident with the woman and after, and he's, his identity is kind of reformed um, after he has that moment of kind of, that's the beginning uh, of a recognition, you know, where he goes back and he questions all of his, uh, you know, saintly behavior and uh, finds it self-motivated after all. So, I don't know. There was a, there was a resonance there with St. Paul for me too, maybe having to do with his fall. Is this uh, page 143? Uh, such nights or such mornings, rather, Parentheses for the fall occurs at dawn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is that what you're referring to? I that go is. out and walk briskly along the canals. That's right. So that page, that statement, did what for you, Nathan? I, I just uh, I wanted to tie in that it was titular, just to kind of oh, okay. get everything out on the outset. I think that that's a a pretty good canvas, and now we you know can dive in specifically. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah. that it obviously brings up uh, that whole discussion of him living that debauchery, which he did at great, at great, to a great extent. Yeah, yeah. The, you know, that early life that he talks about, he really talks about his life in two phases. I think part of the beauty of this is over that five-day course, you get this, it's, it's really, this, it's such a tight story. It, it's really it is. telling. I mean, he leaves these little breadcrumbs that, you know, are so... So uh, one of the first things he's talking about in the first phase, I guess, or maybe the first act, uh, the first day, he's talking about the life that he led as a lawyer and as a general man. You know, he says that he had his life that he was living was simply um, uh, there. (laughs) He was talking about just the ease with which life was coming to him and how it seemed that he had a pride in it because it was earned. And then he has this little moment, but then there was that evening. And then he leaves off of it and just kind of leaves that idea of an evening that's bothering him, lingering. And he doesn't pick that up until later. But you, and, and then that evening was the woman jumping off of the bridge. And yeah. everything turns around for him. It, and it's not just that moment either. There's also the, uh, the stoplight scene where he is comically uh, done an injustice. And he realizes that if that injustice can happen to him or if he can be made such a fool of so easily without anyone else getting their just desserts, then he's not really the Superman that he thought that he was. Uh, Here's this. um, uh, He's talking about just how things were were going well in his life. Um, It's worth reading this one. Here it is. Yes. What page is it? 28. Okay. And this is him setting up uh, his lifestyle before uh, before things turned for him. And he said, Few creatures were more natural than I, 
I was altogether in harmony with life, fitting into it from top to bottom without rejecting any of its ironies, its grandeur, or its servitude. In particular, the flesh, matter, the physical in short, which disconcerts or discourages so many men in love or in solitude, without enslaving me, brought me steady joys. I was made to have a body. Whence that harmony in me, that relaxed mastery that people felt, even to telling me sometimes that it helped them in life. Hence my company was in demand. Often, for instance, people thought they had met me before. Life, its creatures, and its gifts offered themselves to me, and I accepted such marks of homage with a kindly pride. To tell the truth, just from being so fully and simply a man, I looked upon myself as something of a superman. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's and he's careful in, in all of this not to be bragging and not to even if it sounds like a brag uh, he, he's trying to say this is just a fact I was charming if you can just take that as yeah, bad, no, said then that, I can tell you I something else, I was you know? attractive women yeah. wanted me yeah I mean yeah well I don't know I got a little sense of a brag but Okay, I'll go with it. <laughs> but I think well, sometimes it really it is just a matter of fact. <laughs> <laughs> okay, really? <laughs> you know, if okay. George Clooney wrote this, would you, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, sometimes it's just real. It's just the way it is. Okay. Yeah. I also like the, um, the in, in the beginning where he taught, basically where we're all implicated. Um and what he's actually trying to to you know he's seeking in his early life he's seeking goodness and he finds that it's that you know more than goodness he's getting self satisfaction and um but there's but there's something you know there's something more to it you know he's he wants to have i i think he truly wants to be good he he he's he's looking for that that path in life and Instead, what he finds is what you know that people frequently do good things for selfish reasons. And um, I, I have, <laughs> I have a line that I that I really like that I want to read. Um, I think it's on page uh, forty-one. If pimps and thieves were invariably sentenced, all decent people would get to thinking they themselves were constantly innocent. Chamonsier. And in my opinion, that's what must be avoided above all. Otherwise, everything would be just a joke. So that, you know, we need our trespasses, right? It, it, we, we can't count everyone's trespasses. Um, and we also can't not count our own. We can't say, just because you're guilty, I'm innocent. Or, or I would never do that. Or that's not in my character. It's in all of us. Well, that, that, mm -hmm. Go ahead. No, go oh, ahead. I mean, that ties in uh, to what you set up in the beginning with uh, the phase transition that goes on through the story. So he really sets you up in this, uh, you know, setting him. He puts himself forward, but it's really this this confession that's a mirror. And whenever yeah. he he flips it, he says, actually, whenever I was being a great lawyer and thinking I was helping orphans and. Uh, doing all of this really fine stuff, what I was actually doing was nursing myself. And whenever I realized that, whenever I realized that I wasn't above everything, just like with the traffic accident, 
then everything changed for me and I could start to see you know the cracks in my life and they you know begin to spread and so by the end of this he's he's telling you he's telling you all the things that have gone wrong or that are complex about being a human from his perspective but by doing that he's opened up to you a natural human condition that you can't help but see in yourself and at one point he says um you know, I know that this story doesn't flatter me. I think he was talking about a woman that he seduced because she snubbed him at one point and he just wanted to get her affections. And he said, I know that this doesn't flatter me, but if you look at your own story, you may have one to tell me in just a moment. And Yeah, motive and, you know, motive in uh, all of this stuff, motive in generosity, motive in love. What's your true motive? And I think it's, yeah, please, sorry. I was just going to say it's a problem with altruism, right? And I think it ties into his unbelief in uh, in a god. So all his good acts were only to uh, the more give glory to himself rather than, you know, I guess, god in, in the sense of what religious people would say that they were doing these good things for. He has a line on 25, uh, living aloft is still the only way of being seen and hailed by the largest number. <laughs> I love that. So. I wrote that one down too. Yeah. <laughs> there was something that he said on page six that you know started off. Oh, I love that one. I know um, where you're going. I sometimes think of what future historians will say of us. A single sentence will suffice for modern man. He fornicated <laughs> and read the paper. <laughs> and I thought about that. It's like, yep, we fucking we gossip. Yeah, you know, that's like. <clears throat> But it's one, It's interesting are. to think what Camus, what, why he wrote that. I mean, what was in his mind at that moment writing that. I mean, it's fascinating. Well, and and I think that that's uh, that simple line right there uh, with the fornication in the papers is brought up later in a, maybe the fourth day or the third day. He talks about the dynamic that drove him in his life. So, uh, there is a line where he said. I'm ashamed to say, but if I had been given ten conversations with Einstein, I would have thrown them away for a pretty A woman, girl. I know. <laughs> but, however, he goes on to say, uh, but if I had spent ten days with that girl, I would be dying for a conversation with Einstein. With Einstein. <laughs> we are changeable. Funny. So, I mean, I think that, I just want to put this in, like, stake in the ground. I think that the the real the real like the joke or the punchline or the twist of the story is how he so carefully sets you up to it's 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 almost like a it's almost like a a villain or something like this is like a grand plan that he has to to lure in with his confessions and get everyone to see that this is his role that he's defined at the beginning the judge penitent He's not just judging. He's not just getting up and saying, you people, you people. He's like a comedian in this way. He gets up and he says, this is me, and if you happen to see yourself in this, well, that's all the better. Yeah. Yeah, he says he, like, he, he goes to the bar to have people confess to him after, like, uh, he mentions at one point after they're drunk, they, like, fall on the ground crying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I... Uh, Part of that that I I really liked because he's he's not really um, accusing himself but accusing all of mankind um, 
and this way, this I think really plays into that. The truth is that every intelligent man, as you know, dreams of being a gangster and of ruling over society by force alone. So he he doesn't even bring himself into it. But if you if you consider yourself intelligent, you know you have to actually take that in and say, huh, would I do? Th- would I want to do that? You know. Well, and the anecdote he gives about the stoplight, I mean, I think everybody could see themselves in that. And the thing that he wanted <laughs> above all was not, you know, it wasn't just like to, I mean, he, so, so he pulls up to the stoplight, there's a guy on a motorcycle, and the motorcycle's stalling, and the light turns green, and he's saying, get out of the way, and the guy's like, fuck you, and everyone behind him starts blaring their horns, and so he gets out of his car and is like, hey, excuse me, can, you know, you get out of the way, and and another motorist comes up and is going to stop him from interacting. And whenever he turns to address that guy, the motorcycle guy punches him in the head and then drives off. And then he turns and the motorcycle guy's gone. And all the cars are honking their horn at him. And like now he's the asshole. And he has to get back in his car. And he's thinking that the only thing I want to do is catch up with this guy in the motorcycle and put him against the curb. And, <laughs> you know, just make it right in some way. He wanted to come to be vindicated. He wanted to be completely dominant. And dominant comes up quite a few times in this, and I wonder about that word. He talks about it again with islands. He says that he enjoys the small islands because they're easy to dominate. Yeah. And I think in that way he he's meaning also dominion and perspective and uh, he, he there's a Something that I'm trying to tie in here that he talks about earlier, he says that if he was being honest, he wants the world to be waiting for him on the back burner. That whenever he wants to call a friend, he wants them to be there. He wants everybody to stop what they're doing for him. In short, he wants the world to exist for him. There's actually a line, I think it might tie into um, uh, this on page 68. He says, I could live happily only on the condition that all individuals on Earth, or the greatest possible number, Return towards me, eternally in suspense, devoid of independent life and ready to answer my call at any moment, doomed in short to sterility until the day I should deign to favor them. In short, for me to live happily, it was essential for the creatures I chose chose not to live at all. They must receive their life sporadically only at my bidding. Yeah. Yeah, that's, what, what, that's what, the line. At what page does the um, woman fall into the sin? Do you remember? I don't have that Because you're, you're saying... Right, Nathan, that um, that it was what we see as a change at that point, and it, after before the fall and after the fall. Yeah. For, no pun well, intended. Can, I, mean, yeah. I think. I think you can see. You can. I mean, it, it's a you know probably uh, despite the fact that he got so much enjoyment out of being generous. Um he could still feel like he was on the that he was being good or that he had he was on the road to goodness but in that act in ignoring that he he couldn't lie about it anymore he had to you know cuz there wasn't wait, wait. there wait. was the, go ahead in in ignoring her that was a oh, okay. that was a definite act yeah, because it's not just that he saw someone jump off of a bridge. The way it's set up, and I'm just thinking back to it, he sees this woman late at night staring over the edge of the bridge, and he yeah. walks past her. And it's not until he's passed that he hears just a 
horrible sound of the body hitting the water. And right. then he hears screams going downstream. And he does not jump in the water, and he does not go and save her. And this haunts him to where later he's having a great night, and he's about to, next to the river, this is later, smoke a cigarette of satisfaction when he hears a laugh from the river. And it yeah. sends like a chill through him. Right. And the laugh you know, disappears down the stream, and, and he's haunted by that real loneliness. And so if you go back to before he even mentioned this uh, in the first section, that first day he's talking, he says something that I thought was uh, uh, just really staggering about friendships. And he's saying, you know, you want your friends to be there for you, and you hope that they'll call on the night whenever you're considering your suicide. Yeah. But they never do. They call on the day whenever you're happy and busy, or they just miss it. And to me, he's as much as showing a mirror to other people at the end of the story, he sees in that woman a mirror of himself and is terrified by that desolation that she encountered and 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 sees what it would be like to feel that way and to die and to shout out and for no one to come for him either. In other words, she was calling and he didn't answer. I mean, the scent is not a little stream that you jump into no. to save somebody from either. I mean, it's a really not, you know, they'll, they're both going to die. I mean, he talks about how, the, how quickly the water was running that night and stuff like that. I mean, that's the other thing, is that I, I won't, I mean, it wasn't just I won't save you, it was I won't die for you, all of my generosity. I'm not Christ. I am not going to die for your sins or for your sorrow or anything else. I'm not going to try and save you because it'll kill me. Yeah, and we should talk about Christ in a second. Um, but, uh, yeah, we should. The, the, the last line of the book deals just with this woman and the idea of going back. And uh, Laura quoted the majority up to it, but then there's you know, this. Uh, oh, young woman, throw yourself in the water again so that I may have a second time uh, the chance to save both save of you. us. And then the very end is, just suppose, though, that we should be taken literally. We'd have to go through with it. And yeah. burr, the water is so cold. But let's not worry. It's too late now. It will always be too late, fortunately. Yeah, the last line I thought of that. <laughs> fortunately. <laughs> I, I, I remember I looked at that word and I thought, what, what is he saying? Why fortunately? Why not unfortunately? But is he telling himself that he, he'll get it next time? Is... <laughs> Well, that there won't be a next time, so he's happy. And this goes back to what he was saying about friends and death. You know, it's like, oh, we love our friends, but you know the friends we love more are the ones that are dead. They don't impose yeah. on you. And he was like, I had an ex, and that ex died. And immediately in my heart there was a place for her in a way that there wouldn't have been even if she was still alive and we were talking. And there's a way in which the finality of death instantly cements something or aggrandizes, romanticizes yet it's cut off. And so at the end here, <laughs> you know, uh, I can imagine going back, but imagine if we could, you know, that would be really tough, but we can't absolutely. So that's, that's a fortunate thing there, but that fortunate is, that's a, that's a lingering line there. It's, it's, it's terrifying and it's, so he's saying that he can keep the thought in mind that uh, now that he's thought about it, if he were to go back, even though that's impossible, he'd, handle the situation correctly. So I think that he would, but, but he can't. 
You know, so exactly. it's easy to romanticize yourself and think that you can. So it, maybe I'm left with that. I think is what he's saying. But situation. He, go ahead. The uh, situation just reminds me of. Um, I think I recently read No Country for Old Men, and the sheriff there, uh, he's like spends his entire life doing good deeds, but he regrets the fact that he let his comrades die back in the war. Right. But nothing. Nothing he d- does, no matter how noble and good a life he lives, he can't go back to that moment and die with his his friends or fix that s- scenario. So in the same sense that this guy, living his entire life thinking about this one moment where he, you know, he was supposed to put his money where his mouth is, and he was found wanting. Well, I mean, imagine if if someone's about to die, right in front of you, and you do nothing. I mean, you you hear, you know, it's going to happen, and you do nothing. I mean, you actively do nothing. Yeah, isn't that the uh, uh, Phil Collins song? <laughs> isn't that the myth behind uh, one of those really popular songs that uh, a singer saw a woman drowning and didn't do anything, but then saw her later? Am I, I don't know. This is, this I don't is off, know what song is. Uh, There's a really popular song, and I've heard, and this might be a myth, but it, it serves the point well, that a guy, and this is actually a good twist of the story, a guy sees or hears a woman drowning, uh, sees her, I guess, and doesn't do anything, and then later sees her, not as a ghost, but she made it out, and he's you know kind of left with, oh man, oh, I really didn't do the right thing. <laughs> yeah, but she made it out. Mm-hmm. That's another weird thought. Well, even in the book, doesn't he say he, or no, he avoided reading the newspapers as to not, uh, as to not get the report. Right? Yeah, yeah. As for that, I didn't read the newspapers for days. Yeah. Yeah, one day I used to work in... Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Daniel. Oh, I was just going to... While we were on the subject of that last line, it seemed to me that that implicated the confession itself, too, because I think one thing I got the sense of in my reading, and I did did kind of... uh, I'm still lacking the last 30% of the novel, I think, but um, I read enough around to get to the ending, and I was reading about it. And uh, I really felt a sense of suspicion for the narrator, too, in the act of the confession. And it seemed part of his point to me was that you really don't get around that self-motivated aspect of human life under any, circum- under any circumstances. I'm sorry. And the confession itself, when he gives you that last line, um, you know, that it's it's fortunate that you don't have that second chance. Um, that kind of indicates to me, I think, that the confession itself is a sort of um, a sort of offering, a low-stakes offering, I guess. You don't have to, uh, you know, it's sort of that apology when there's really no restitution possible, and it's suspect for that reason. And, you know, he he never really... The way I heard one professor put it, she said he never has to choose between the lesser of two evils, and in that way he's finding it easier to be a saint than a man. And he always, uh, you know, that saintly existence he lived before the woman jumped in and and the motorcycle uh, incident as well, they both uh, kind of showed him, you know, the mask slipped in those moments, and his instinctual reaction was not in alignment with the self-image he had. And so he finds that, uh, you know, he, he, has a, he has a sort of crisis there, I guess the, the cliched existential crisis, right, where he has to, uh, he has to then come to terms with um, this, you know, 
mask I've, I've been wearing, you know, is not actually me. And from then on, it's no longer comfortable to wear it, you know. And, and so now the confession is sort of his, um, his way of, you know, performing his own kind of consolation prize. He's trying to give himself, you know, he, he's kind of endlessly performing that act of uh, absolution, but without ever being able to receive it. You know, I think one of you guys talked about that at the beginning. You know, there's no one to confess to. There's no one that can forgive you. So you have to, uh, you know, you're just stuck in that place that Sartre and the other existentialists left you without any uh, possible, you know, forgiveness. Yeah. I I really uh, thought that the, um, like the, the, the doves in the sky that no one can see that this yeah. that, that played into the, the the you know the god is dead thing but wouldn't it be nice um if there actually were you know if there actually were a god um if there actually were some way, you know some form of absolution yeah because one of the key questions i think was that does does the guilt of everyone, you know, does this universal complicity in any way absolve us of our own guilt? You know, does um, the fact that maybe we couldn't do otherwise or the fact that everybody else is also, you know, in this human condition that they can't get out of and, you know, you can always point the finger. You can always say that, you know, this is simply this state of nature in which we're a part of and we're, you know, that that's kind of um, the flip side of what we were talking about earlier, where he's, you know, enjoining everyone, you know, who he confesses to in this bar, and you know, seeing the mirror. But is that, uh, you know, it, does that in any way kind of, you know, I, I don't know. Like I, I, I was thinking about this in a personal way, you know. I mean, because what you see, I think a. a something that I engage with a lot of the time and find myself um, involved in as well is kind of humility in which you have a, a certain amount of self-deprecation or a certain amount of self-criticism and that kind of signs your hall pass in order to talk about other people and gossip kind of like you were saying Mary or to be the judge you know the penitence you know writes your uh, your hall pass to be the judge, you know. Meaning, I suck, so I can tell everybody else they suck. Right. If you can be your, if you can make your own confession, you know, with as much uh, gory detail and with, you know, as damning as you can make it, does that allow you then to be the judge? Does that give you permission? Well, if you start at the bottom, you're not worried about getting a uh, mud flown thrown back at you, right? If you start right. your speech off, well, I'm this terrible, terrible person. I've done all this stuff. You lay it out in the open, so <laughs> can no longer call you on that, right? Exactly. Although I've always thought that that uh, admitting that you're an asshole does not make it okay to be an asshole. You don't get a yeah. hall pass just for saying that that's the way you are. But on the other hand, and I strongly believe that, you know, people do not, you know, most of the people that I know do not give themselves the kind of break that they deserve for being human, for being an animal, for having a body. You know, you, you can really twist yourselves and you know, yourself in knots and, you know, spend a lot of time eating your liver over things that, are, that you know, just... Aren't worth it. Yeah, relax. <laughs> Chill. Yeah. 
I'd agree. It's a lot harder to to let you off the hook, and I think that plays into to this. You know, no no absolution, no forgiveness, mm-hmm. and everything is is permanent in this existentialist worldview. And I mean, I I have glimpses of that. I still like have pangs. I I still get pangs of awkward feelings when I think back to my first grade seven dance and how terrible <laughs> that was. I can't <laughs> <say> <laughs> Like, like, I'm an adult now. I can let it go. Heather doesn't remember let it me. Go. Oh, no. oh, no. It, it stays with you forever. Yeah. <laughs> There's no yeah. going back. There's no going back. Well, I've always thought that, yeah, that's what, that's what therapy is, is just, you know, whatever you work out, it's, it's getting the courage to lift up the rocks to see the bugs underneath it. Yeah, right. And at some point realizing that those bugs aren't so bad. They're just bugs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Here's what he says. Uh, this is 141. Admit that today you feel less pleased with yourself than you felt five days ago. Oh yeah, sorry. <laughs> it's a good one, huh? You know, yeah. it's like uh, you'll come back, I'm sure, and you'll find me unchanged. And why should I change since I have found the happiness that suits me? I have accepted duplicity instead of being upset about it. On the contrary, I have settled into it and found there the comfort I was looking for throughout life. I was wrong, after all, to tell you that the essential was to avoid judgment. The essential is being able to permit oneself everything, even if, from time to time, one has to profess vociferously one's own infamy. I permit myself everything again. Yeah. I think it makes sense in life to try it at least once or twice. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, you know... I, I, you know, with a lot of this stuff, I think about one of the things that um, I find annoying is is party guilt. You know, it's like you you go to a party and like, sure, if every single time you go to a party you get drunk and you make, you know, you stand on the table and make pronouncements about whatever, then yeah, maybe you should think about not drinking so much. But you know, just the general like, I had a really good time last night. Maybe I got a little loud, like. You know, feeling bad about it afterwards, I find very annoying. Like, you know, with friends or something, it's just like, oh, for Christ's sake, you just let loose, let yeah, it go. Chill. <laughs> we all had fun. You know, Enjoy your Dionysian revelry. <laughs> Sorry, what'd you say? Enjoy your Dionysian revelry. You know. Yeah, exactly. We're <clears throat> permitted. But it it's says okay. He, but, but he said, remember this quote in what he says: "Such nights or such mornings, rather, for the fall occurs at dawn." Yeah. I go out and walk briskly along the canals. I mean, the fall occurs; it happens, and that's because we live in this Christian society, which we haven't discussed yet. Yeah. Yeah. Go with. Well, isn't it also like there's a there's degrees of variation between you know the sins that you might commit, right? I mean, there's dancing on the table a little too, you know, ecstatically, and then there's, you know, turning your back on the woman. You know, I mean, some things yeah. you're going to be able to shrug off. Some guilts are going to stay with you. Yeah, I, but I still want to bring up that I, I actually think that that, you know, maybe you run in and find, a, you know, a cop or something like that. But that was an impossible situation. So I think that there's something in there about, saving people who can't possibly be saved also. Mm. Like the fall is, I mean, you know, he's taking on a lot of guilt about something that he probably couldn't have done a lot about. Well, maybe that's the guilt of humankind. 
Yeah. Maybe and that's so what he's saying. Jesus, right. Well, however, I think that he may have been able to, if not save her, at least died in the most meaningful way. I think that that's something he struggles with, is that yeah. he could have tried. He could have lost his individuality, which means his life, and given it up for this other person. Uh, yeah. And he did not. You know, he, he really, he could have jumped in. You know, it's not like he he could not have. You know, that would be something different. He could wipe his hands away. Um, you know, the fact that he was hesitated, you know, because the challenge is big, he's not excused. Well, well it's not... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I mean, he. I think that he might have gone over and talked to her when he saw her. Mm. Um, that that was something that he might have done that, you know, that... the. You know, there. I used to work in Marin, and there was, you know, one of the days when I was coming home, I went over the Golden Gate Bridge every day, and um, oh. there was a jumper, and God, man, bridge. the people in their cars were way more upset that they were late, you know, because traffic was stopped. They were way more upset that they were in traffic than that someone was going to die in a second. You know, it's just, yeah, there's an incredible callousness. Um, if it inconveniences you. Well, then maybe that's what he was saying, Camus. Yeah. By setting up that situation the way he did. In other words, he also, at the beginning of the book, when he's talking about all the incredible things he was doing and, you know, um, you know, defending the poor and, you know, giving up his seat and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, isn't there a quality of how he was giving of himself at the beginning of the book and then how he didn't give of himself or could have given up of himself at the time that that woman jumped in the river. Yeah. There's a quality in the difference. But maybe in we, if we look at the whole picture, <clears throat> excuse me, what he's saying is that we can't save. We can't give ourselves. We are human. We can't do this. Hence, that's why we need God. Well, and this gets to Jesus uh, and his idea of Jesus and the story and the the censor uh, of, you know, of Luke, you know, he talks about Jesus and um, the slaughter of the innocents and Jesus having to live with that and the crushing weight of that guilt of being the survivor of it. And I, I mean, I, I just want to open the door. I'm, I'm you may hear me hesitating here. It's because there's so much that I want to talk about and I'm just trying to get it all in a line. <laughs> um, just go for it, Nathan. Go for it. <laughs> well, I, I mean, there's, there's this, uh, you know, brilliant section where he's talking about uh, Jesus and the life that he led, and what I what I like about it is he's talking about the different gospels a little bit. He doesn't say yeah, gospels. What page but, is that again? Um, uh, I couldn't tell you. I want to I want to say it's in the later third or the early fourth. Yeah. Oh wait. Yeah. Um, I think you're right. And he's talking about Jesus being up on the cross and and dealing oh, with yeah. guilt and letting himself be killed because he right. felt guilty that all these other people had died for him and that this was a repentance. And then on the cross saying that thou hast forsaken me, talking to God, like what what did I do? What did you do? What is this? Uh, what's going on? And the fact that Luke censored it, screamed it aloud because someone else didn't. Um, and whenever it got out, uh, there's this line, he says that... Uh, God, I'd love to be able to find it. Um, he 
talks about the the sensor and whenever it's oh it's right here um no that's not it anyway the gist was that by censoring it he highlighted the most important thing and it's that struggle that Jesus had on the cross there and this is the struggle that I think Jean deals with in the story of being a survivor with the guilt and his his way of getting back at the world is to express it or to show other people that like they like he thought of himself that he was above that he's actually not that he's a that he's a part of the work and the problems and the crime and that if you really look inside yourself you're going to find this guilt and you know and he also says though about this uh, method of showing people a mirror through himself that it's not the ideal this is just what he's hit upon it's not the perfect solution um, but this is what he's come up with it's how he copes um I, I'm on page 116 because I'm looking kind of where you're what you're talking about oh, I, um, I found the line um, okay where is it it's 113 oh good I mean the area yeah, yeah. The right area uh, yes it was the third evangelist I believe who first suppressed his complaint why hast thou forsaken me right it was a seditious cry wasn't it well then the scissors mind you if Luke had suppressed nothing the matter would hardly have been noticed in any case it would not have assumed such importance thus the censor shouts aloud what he prescribes the world's order likewise is ambiguous and that line right there I, I'm, I'm stuck here there's a couple of lines in the book that I'm that are really rich uh, and that I'm, that I'm still trying to get something out of uh, but I think what the he, world's order likewise is ambiguous that line yes I, I think I what he says there is that what's left in, what we, or, or what is rather not said, I, 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 I'm not sure here. I'm hoping someone else can pick up a thread. Well, what we want to censor, what we what gets censored, you know, what gets censored in your head, in your own life, what do you censor of your experiences with other people? Those are the things that should be screaming at you. And I think it also presumes that the order, the, the world's order that we see, the stories that we have, are ambiguous because of that. That there's something left out, there's something edited. And namely, I think it's the lives of the people. What we have are the stories uh, and the ideas of what's gone on. Though there is... Actually, I, I have a completely different take on this. Please. <laughs> Spill it, Laura. I, I don't. I don't know if it's going to be anything worthwhile. But um, I, I, when I see that line, I'm kind of separating it from the paragraph in a way. The world's order, order the world's order, likewise, is ambiguous. To me, that's a comment on um, Christianity and and its role in in our society. When he says the world's order, likewise, is ambiguous, what he's saying is that Christianity is a fallacy. Because that's what Christianity tries to do, is make the world's order not ambiguous. Hmm. Hmm. Anyway, I guess that wasn't it. <laughs> oh, well, and so the gospel then would be uh, the gospel that's writ, or that the one that passes through is the, the Christian order as we know it around us, and uh, the world's order to some degree. But I guess the story 
I mean, Luke's story is that Jesus sacrificed uh, was sacrificed on the cross for humanity. Um, right. And what he, what he censored was that line, why hast thou forsake me? So that changes the story from like a willing participant to, you know, yeah. the human model of uh, you jump in the bridge and you're happy about it to, no, actually Jesus was not happy with what's going on. And so <laughs> he you should have helped me. Yeah. Nobody wants to die. You yeah. know, that, I think that, yeah. So it's actually, it, you know, it, too bad he didn't see that in uh, in light of his own depression about not, you know, sacrificing himself for that woman. I guess the fallacy, the, the censored material is that no, yeah, nobody wants to die, but we're going through life thinking ourselves as good people, willing at a you know moment's drop to sacrifice ourselves. Oh wow! Then the world's order is likewise yeah. ambiguous. Would be something like the <laughs> that things are okay. Or that the. Where do you get that things are okay? <laughs> well, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Well, well, that there is um that there's at least a sense that 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 the world order that the 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 reasoning and all of the all of the understanding that we have of the world is ambiguous because it's belied, or that it's uh and it, it's an inheritance that we get but we miss the lives of the inheritor that there's that we may have all of these fixtures around us. God, it's a good line. It's a good line. <laughs> we're, we're waiting for you, Nathan. I, I, <laughs> we're, we're going through this with you. We're suffering with you. Yeah. We're all on the cross. <laughs> looking down the line at you. Well, I have a line from a little bit, uh, I don't know if it's earlier or later, that um, I would like to throw out there. Um, and this is basically about truth and lies. Um, sometimes it is easier to see clearly into the liar than into the man who tells the truth. Truth, like light, blinds. Falsehood, on the contrary, is a beautiful twilight that enhances every object. And Where is I, it? Um, let's see. Uh, I think it's on page 119, but I'm, it's, that's the page You're that my sure. Kindle told okay. me. Right. Um, but I do like the idea that... Um, the, the the idea that falsehood is a beautiful twilight that enhances every object. I like it because I, you know, part of me thinks that, sure, lying's bad, but it takes imagination. <laughs> a very human quality. <laughs> yeah. And that you can make things, you know, depending on the lie, that you can make things better. You know, this... I think about him helping the blind man and then tipping his hat as he walked away. Certainly not tipping his hat for the blind guy. He's doing it for himself. And just the... For himself. Yeah. And the world also is a performative act. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but here's my, you know, here's my act of altruism. You know, and here's Jesus on the cross. And here's Luke lying for him. You know. So... Looking into the knowing that Luke lied and looking into the the falsehood, what does that tell you about how Luke felt? You know, is you know Luke wanted to make Jesus the stoic hero, but that yeah. So that's it. That's the ambiguous. Then uh, I got it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it it's that it, at least it points to something that's been left out, and I guess that's not a huge revelation. But we, I mean, we know that the world around us is. Uh, you know, it's missing something, or it's just a piece. But it, it 
throws all the order that we have into an ambiguity because there is something that's missing. And it may be that the, the order that we get, these stories are just a way of continuing, but they're missing it. Maybe that the world's order themselves is a lie, that we're missing out on a truth that gets edited out by life and death, people dying and not being able to express their inner worlds, but that people will come across again and again precisely by living a life in that world that they've inherited. Yeah, I think about like the early people and, uh, you know, maybe it's a mystery still, I guess, to me at least how language got started, but you have, um, you know, I imagine early human beings looking around at a world that they have to interpret for themselves, you know, and kind of like Mary was talking about, you, you form these interpretations of what you see around you and, you know, we we make meaning, we make concepts, we make understandings and we share them socially and a big theme in the novel is forgetting and remembering and I think when those fantasies start to work causally for us and when they start to be productive and um, you know, easy, we forget that they are fantasies and constructions and we forget that we're layering meaning on top of the world and so then, you know, we're surprised when the mask slips, we're surprised when those meanings don't end up, you know, adhering just so perfectly to our experience, you know, and they have to be readapted or readjusted and uh, I think, you know, that's part of his difficulty with forgetting and remembering, you know, he, it, it's that misalignment, you know, perhaps of interpretation to what's being interpreted. Yeah, he says something about um, stories in this way, and I'm going to connect metaphorically stories to a world order, because I consider the Christian narrative and, you know, all of our science and everything to be the, the order that we see around us. Um, and on 100, he's talking about love and uh, his mistresses. Uh, he says, at least until she became my mistress, I realized that the true love stories, though they taught how to talk of love, did not teach how to make love. And there's something that, really beautiful. that it's missing, right? That you may get this ordered you know, story in front of you, though you're you're going to have to put in some kind of extra thing, this work. And I think that's where the ambiguity comes in. And it's also what can lead you to living a lie if you're trying to match up to the true story, you know, true capital T. And what is, you know, and you can feel false against that. Um, and that's the rub. It's kind of the biggest why, right? The fairy tale of love that we tell ourselves, our children, you know, that what people believe love is supposed to be about, you know, romantic love anyway, that fairy tale. Half the people in, you know, more than half the people who get married get divorced. It's not easy to be married, you know. Love does not conquer all. The fucking bills come in. Wait, since when is marriage and love are the same thing? Well, <laughs> okay. I'm just I'm talking about the fairy tale. Okay. I'm not talking about reality. Reality. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, I agree with you though. I mean, like we're surrounded by those narratives, and it's wish fulfillment, and you know, the best possible 
scenario, you know, the unachievable fantasy is what our expectation is, you know, that's what we're kind of enculturated to expect from society and from our own relationships from a very early age and, and really to the point where we don't even have kind of an alternative in mind, you know, that's just like, it's that or nothing well, that's, you're that, I think, a personal I, failure if you don't achieve it. I think yeah. that's a very important point that the, we don't have an alternative in mind because I think that that's something else that comes out of this book, which is um, that, if, that he, I think Camus had a real problem with what Sartre and these existentialists were um, you know, promoting and, and writing about and, and enforcing on, and that is that, um, that there is no God. And I think that even though Camus like was on board with that, there there was something in him that had a real problem with that. Um, because there's no alternative. Because they didn't offer an alternative. They didn't it's offer an alternative. Despair. Yeah. I know that's the problem, and and I think that's what a lot of society suffers from. I mean, I'm not pro-Christian or anything. I'm just saying that that's mm -hmm. fascinating that that exists. Um, like he says here, um, uh, those of uh, wait, where is it? The others are involved. Do you know? What has become of one of the houses in the city that sheltered Descartes? It's a lunatic asylum. <laughs> I mean, that's another. I mean, it's just interesting, you know, that he, you know, knowing who Camus was, who his friends were, who he was, you know, you know what he, what he was doing at the time, you know, it's just fascinating to see how he's separating himself in a way from them. Yeah. Philosophically, well, he a lot of flack for this novel, right? He caught it. He was this novel was written and kind of came out at a time when his public reputation was under siege heavily. Um, he was not popular with the dominant kind of uh, philosophical literary society, who are mostly Marxist, and right. he was being sort of championed by a conservative base who he was really opposed to. And he was just largely misinterpreted, from what I understand, um, across across the board, and and the object of vicious personal attacks and misinterpretations. Yeah, and, and then he won the Nobel. Yeah, boom. Yeah. So. Um, there was something else that jumped out at me, and I keep thinking about poor Nathan and the ambiguity of it all. Um. For <laughs> <laughs> us. Oh, I think I'm onto something. Yeah, I think I got it. I think it's settled once and for all. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, the key, but it, I'm reading this here. I guess I'm on 117. He says, "But the keenest of human torments is to be judged without a law. Yet we are in that torment, deprived of their natural curb. The judges, loosed at random, are racing through their job. Hence, we have to try to go faster than they, don't we? And it's a real madhouse. Profits and quacks multiply. They hasten to get." get there with a good law or a flawless organization. That's what law is, organization, before the world is deserted. Fortunately, I arrived. I am the end and the beginning. I announce the law. In short, I am a judge penitent. I think that's an interesting uh, paragraph. Oh, yeah. About about this organization. I mean, that's what law is. It's It's... We, you know, we need these laws. That's what Christianity is. Christianity is its laws. It has nothing to do with spirituality. It's all about, you know, having this. This is what the law is, and this is what you know the prophets say, and this is what we have to go to church, and we have to, you know, give thanks for this, and we, this is when we say the prayer. I mean, the the laws of the mass and all of that. It's all laws. It's a force for that. social order. 
Right. It supports these social orders. It stabilizes. It's like marriage. It stabilizes social order. It has nothing to do with love. It has nothing to do with spirituality. It has nothing to do with freedom. Yeah. So line on page 11, uh, he's talking about the, uh, um, the Jews being killed in the Second World War, and he says, uh, when one has no character, one has to apply a method. Yeah, I know. I, I highlighted that. Yeah. Yeah. Good line. When you get, uh, I, I just, I'm thinking about it having nothing to do with any of those things, and I'm wondering, you know, doesn't it have to cash out, at least in your imagination on a personal level at some point, in order for you to apply that discipline, in order to exact that social force on a larger scale? I mean, doesn't that have to sort of trickle down to some kind of referent, even if it's a personal one? Or is it just, you know, I, I don't wait, know. <laughs> no, no, wait, say that again. You're asking a question? So, well, I'm wondering about, you know, if it has to have nothing to do with freedom or love, I mean, don't those things have to have at least personal reference within, reference within the minds of um, Christianity's adherents or um, the individuals that make up the social fabric? Um, don't, don't those laws have to refer to some idea um, within the minds of, uh, you know, believers in order to garner that correct action from them, you know? That obeying, that they're yeah. obeying. Well, yeah. it's not completely arbitrary, right? I mean, it is, there is some, you know, yoke that all this seems to take up. I mean, it, it plays on, you know, natural fears or inclinations or is founded on at least biological sexual coupling and the idea of marriage. You know, there's there's something there that is uh, that's able to be played. Yes, you can make sense of it, but it's you know it's not completely nonsensical as far as the laws uh, are concerned. Whether you like them or not, there there are you know. But as the as time goes on, and the laws mean less and less. But I mean, isn't then you that what, kill God. Yeah, yeah. Um, isn't that what um, Camus is struggling with here? In this book, certainly one of the things that he's struggling with in the book. I mean, he's struggling obviously with the 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 role of Christianity, obviously, but, yeah, and law. I mean, it's fascinating to me that these are the major um, mm -hmm. dynamics that are in this book: law and Christianity. And yes. it's fascinating to me that this. I mean, talk about taking on a big subject, but that's what he's he's um, examining that struggle. Yeah. And being free and slavery, right? It doesn't need to do a whole discussion of slavery. Oh, yeah. That's but before we, wait, before we go to that, I really want to uh, uh, just get, to, you know, with the Christianity, um, just the thing that really struck me, uh, I think it, I don't know what page it's on. Sorry, guys. It's toward the end. Um, by the way, will you please open that cupboard? Yes. Look at that painting. Don't you recognize it? It is the just judges. Doesn't that make you jump? So the first thing that struck me was like oh, right. oh, his room that has nothing. He has actually set up a tabernacle. Right. And inside it, put the judges, and he opens it. Up, you know, he opens it up sometimes and lets all that judgment just pour over him. You know, he's very agitated. He's he's ill and very agitated. But I was uh, fast. And the other thing is that the painting is stolen. So. There's, you know, uh, more aspects of the law 
and he's, you know, one of the things that, you know, he gives like whatever, five reasons why he has it there. But one of the reasons is it might land him in prison, which would not be bad. <laughs> so. Yeah, and earlier on, uh, this is page 90, he, this is the first hint that you get about that painting, and this is, I think the painting is a great punchline. Um, not not to a joke, but uh, as a dramatic punchline. It, it, it's set up, and then uh, on 90, he's talking about, um, I think this ties into the idea of Jesus on the cross as well. So we have, you know, Jesus saying, why has God forsaken me? And that's, um, you know, uh, a truth. And and then there's also the, the lie of uh, what was being censored and covering up. Anyway, this is what he's saying on page 90. Um, Otherwise, we're there but one lie hidden in a life. Death made it definitive. No one ever again would know the truth on this point since the only one to know it was precisely the dead man sleeping on his secret. That absolute murder of a truth used to make me dizzy. Today, let me interject, it would cause me instead subtle joys. <laughs> the idea, for instance, that I am the only one to know what everyone is looking for and that I have at home an object which kept the police of three countries on the run is a sheer delight. <laughs> let's not get into that. <laughs> Fascinating, and and so he's you know turned around it, and is able to you know really you know get an enjoyment out of that uh, that world lie or what everyone knows. He's really dealing with in this later part of his life from you know going from tipping his hat and being an upstanding citizen to a more subjective world. And the truths that he knows there are now valuable to him, even if they're incredibly private, and precisely because of that. Hmm. We were uh, talking about love as well, and I had this marked out. He was um, uh, talking about the... <laughs> he says, I knew a man who gave 20 years of his life to a scatterbrained woman, sacrificing oh. everything to her, his friendships, <laughs> his work, and the very respectability of his life and who one evening recognized that he had never loved her. He had been bored. That's all, bored like most people. Hence, he made himself out of whole cloth a life full of complications and drama. Something must happen, and that explains most human commitments. Something must happen, even loveless slavery, even war or death. And yet, um, while he uh, is, is damning there about love, he says later on, of course, this is on 57, true love is exceptional. Two or three times a century, more or less. The rest of the time there is vanity or boredom. And so on the one hand, he, I think this gets back to the underline Daniel was putting out there, that there is something that this is, again to use my word, like yoking, that all of these institutions marriage, let's namely marriage, it's, it can be set up, it can be vacuous, but it's not absolutely. There is something there, though it's rare, and it's this interplay uh, that he's interested in, and I think that that's where the truth is, and he's trying to get people to, hey, if you, if you say that you're in love, we'll check it again, or if you think that it's impossible, it's also possible. You've just got to find that balance for yourself, and there's so much contradiction, he wants people to you know, snap out of it because, you know, they're going to the bars and drowning their sorrows and um, living in a delusion and he has gone through that delusion himself 
uh, very ultimately, and he's presenting it. It's could be some kind of ruse or some kind of mean spirited old man joke that he's trying to pull on people, though I think there's something noble about it. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I just really got into this guy's head, or it felt like he got into mine. Because <laughs> yeah. I find myself playing the, the devil's advocate so often in conversations or you know, willing to wear on my sleeve what's my problem. And I'm not and I'm not really doing it for the mirror effect, though I, I find often that people can acknowledge it or or find something in themselves to relate to that that mirror is good again. There was this is a, this is off text, but I was listening to an interview. Um, uh, it was like uh, episode 500, I think, of This American Life, and one of the producers was talking about Ira Glass and his interviewing style, and said this about him that. He sometimes, when the interview stalls, has this ability to share something personal about himself and to put himself out there that opens up the interviewer and they're able to relate to it and connect and go further than they would have. And I think that that's what Camus' character, Jean, is doing in these stories at the bar. I think that he's opening himself up so that other people can go further and... Um, well, that he refers to that mirror at the end of the book. I think that also it, it really taps into a natural sympathy that most people, certainly most people that I know have. You know, you, you hear something and um, want to relate it to yourself and want to make someone feel better and they say, oh God, I, you know, whatever, I got you know I got in an accident on the way to work whatever he's like oh you know, whatever it is just like don't feel bad like that you know and so when you have that kind of you know you can work it in in that way you can open up about yourself and encourage people to open up about themselves because I think that we're naturally sympathetic well yes I think that there's a large percentage of people that are out I also feel like there's you know, sociopaths, and that's interesting to me, that there's frequencies of different kinds of people interacting, and those modulations affect large-scale group chemistry, or, you know, that's where you get leaders from, and you get followers, and there's some kind of alpha, beta, theta, gamma thing going on with each person playing a role to a higher, lesser degree. That being said, the sociopath probably has, uh, you know, sympathy and a slight regard, and in that way, he's related to the entire human enterprise. The same way that we can sometimes be, um, you know, into our own lives uh, to the detriment of other people, um, and that way, are playing slightly sociopathic. Um, and I, I certainly feel incredibly sympathetic, and <laughs> to my detriment, I think I've always, I've always wondered if there was some kind of, I don't know, a Charlie Kaufman uh, switch that I could do in my life if I would, and just go the other way. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting that there would be these roles or these structures of behavior that we would fall into that would be so similar and regular and recurring, but then it would feel so sincere from the first-person point of view, you know? You, you do have that desire to fill up that awkward silence, you know, and perhaps that can just uh, continue to expand and just layer upon itself into decades of a loveless marriage or relationship that you don't even realize that 
is vacuous and devoid of real sincere feeling. You know, it, maybe that's the case, or maybe it's simply the case that uh, you know something is sincere for a while and then all of a sudden um, becomes foreign or alien. I think that can happen too, and it's it's another kind of disquieting thing about uh, human relationships or human meaning. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the mystery is there, or, or what the answer to it is. But there's there is something there about uh, those those regularities in, in social situations um, and their the way they match up with personal experience. Am I crazy? But am I the only one that thinks that his approach? I'm sorry. I hate to go back on text, <laughs> but but am I the only one that thinks that he's got a really bad approach to women? Well, I was just looking, you know, I, I think that he, yes and no, I think that he has some that are very genuine. So there's the one where he, on 65, he, he's talking about the act of love. He says, the act of love is a confession. You know, he says that he didn't lie to women much, and instead he let his instinct speak clearly without subterfuges. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a way in which he let his passion or desire, whenever he had the passion and the desire, speak for itself and there was a truth there and it was picked up on and it allowed for you know amorous relationships and well uh, let me just uh, uh, this is on page 59 he says um, our feminine friends have in common with Bonaparte the belief that they can succeed where everyone else has failed <laughs> God knows I've had that delusion sometimes <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as well, but anyway. Um, I, mean, I was actually sympathetic with his, I mean, I felt like he, that it was part of his freedom and slavery yeah, um, no. thought that, that he, that love will enslave you more than anything else in your life will ever enslave you, and that he was, he had tremendous fear and uh, you know of love and of opening up that far you know he was very generous but he didn't let people in so the only one who really you know he got in to himself but um so yeah i was sympathetic but i don't you know i i mean uh, it, it wasn't that i wasn't sympathetic it's just and i it, it didn't jump out at me at all like oh god this guy's terrible has a terrible perspective on women it wasn't that at all I, I just it's just a little small little thing in the back of my head. This is point that, you know, at heart you can't be selfless. So Yeah. So his comment that will right. maybe true love you know, he can't you can't love anyone truly if that means not actually looking after your interests. Right. I think the comment on um um it plays into how we go through life following methods and doing things we are we ought to do, things like falling in love and getting married, and I think probably at the time, um, I'm assuming that most women were looking for husbands because that's just what you're supposed to do, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it only surprises me even today when uh, I thought about this recently. Um, one of my friends is back in the dating world after being in a long-term relationship, and... Uh, He's telling me sometimes he has to like break things off, and uh, there's still 
being pursued by that person when he clearly put it out there that it's over. And I, I always wondered to myself, how could you want to be with someone who clearly tells you that you don't like them? <laughs> right. That has what's to funny is that that's so often the basis of attraction, right? Yeah. Wow, you can't have... Some people are masochists. Um, wait, what does he say here? Oh, right here. He says, uh, I loved in women my partners in a, my, loved in women my partners in a certain game which had at least the taste of innocence. You see, I can't endure being bored and appreciate only diversions in life. And society, however brilliant, soon crushes me, whereas I have never been bored with the women I liked. It hurts me to confess it. And then he goes on to the Einstein issue. I think that's exactly the same thing from the moviegoer, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It wouldn't surprise me if Walker Percy had read this. Um, oh, yeah. I'm sure he did. If, yeah, it would surprise me if he hadn't, actually. There's uh, something he says on 63, too, where he's talking uh, after a while about the habit he gets into with women and the uh, natural instincts that he has and the the kind of game that he plays. He says that he plays different parts, but the play is always the same. And he, he talks a little bit earlier before this about he played the game and he knew that women uh, didn't like one to reveal your purpose too quickly and that there was a sort of mysteriousness that women were courting and taking to bed and that he was protecting and keeping a secret. And he, uh, you know, talks about you know this process over and over and he has all these liaisons and love affairs and he gets into a routine and, and then this is this is what he says uh, as a result of beginning over and over again one gets in the habit soon the speech comes without thinking and the reflex follows and one day you find yourself taking without really desiring believe me for men at least certain men at least not taking what one doesn't desire is the hardest thing in the world. Not taking what one doesn't desire. Saying no. Yeah. Even if you, Even if you don't want it. We're trained by habit. We're slaves of habit. It says here, I maintain secrecy knowing that it is always better to go to bed with a mystery. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, that, uh, Good now, idea. yeah, please. Oh, no, 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 you. Well, I, that, that was just, uh, there's a couple of lines like that where, um, I, I don't know if it's some kind of dyslexia that I have, but uh, negatives or double <laughs> negatives in sentences really trip me up. Um, and there was one, and I don't, I don't have an answer uh, for this one, and I, I want to find it here. Uh, this is getting to what we uh, marked out we were going to talk about before in slavery. Um, what page is it? Uh, I'm I'm looking for it here. Um, uh, oh well, while you're looking, please. Um, my la <laughs> my last thing about his relationships. I love this line so much. You know what charm is? A way of getting the answer yes without having asked any clear question. <laughs> <laughs> That's just went, beautiful. And he said how charming he is. Yes. Yeah. He is charming. Yes, he is. Tipping his hat to blind men. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, here, I, I had that line, too, and I, I loved it. I, I've just found um, 
the bit here on 46, and I can't figure it out, and I've, I've really tried saying it out loud or just trying to change the negatives around, but maybe you guys can help me. Um, he's talking, in this sense, I don't believe about black-white American slavery. He's talking about some kind of universal power relationship to slavery, something like uh, kings and classes. And just between us, slavery, preferably with a smile, is inevitable then, but we must not admit it. Isn't it better that whoever cannot do without having slaves should call them free men? For the principle to begin with, and secondly, not to drive them to despair. And what I think he's talking about is imagining that we're free while being slaves, in a modern sense to corporations or to nation states. Um, and that if we imagine that we're free, then we have a way of smiling about our lives while still being enslaved. What was your problem? Or with to our passions. I mean, it's yeah, it goes all the way. I mean, it's it's all yeah. of one. Where everything enslaves us. It's that uh, it's that line. It's the question. Uh, it's this double negative, and I'll I'll read it again. Wait, uh, wait. Go is ahead. It, isn't it better that whoever cannot do without having slaves should call them free men? And I'm not sure I understand it. I might be putting my own interpretation onto it, but the negatives there are tripping me up. He's just saying he should. You know, it's kind of like give them the fantasy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It'd be like, yeah, the plantation owners, you know, they're, they're you can't have slaves anymore, but you really can't deal without having people working for you. So let's just call the the people who used to be slaves free men and have the same thing. Or sharecroppers. Yeah. yeah. Or getting glazed chicken at a Chinese restaurant. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Which right. Is, so is this and ironic or is this uh, sincere? What are you saying? Yeah. I think he's sincere. Yeah, he's saying, you know, uh, in that way they'll continue to smile and we shall maintain our good conscience. Otherwise, we'd be obliged to reconsider our opinion of ourselves. We'd go mad with suffering or even become modest, for everything would be possible. Well, yeah, I mean, you don't want everybody to be free, right? That or to acknowledge you're that you're not free. Yeah. I'm and sorry, that, say that again? Or to acknowledge that you're not free and that the lack of smiling as you're serving the glazed chicken is a way of showing you the truth when you would rather have the lie. You mean the person who's buying the chicken? Yeah, the person buying the chicken would like to believe that they're getting a nice chicken dinner and everything's right with the world and there's not really a consequence of the power structure that got them there. However, the unsmiling server is letting you know that... Knows the reality. Yeah, yeah, and that you're the asshole. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. So who's really the one in charge? Who's the authority here? <laughs> yeah, and I think, again, generalized, what he's getting at is that we are preferring to consider ourselves free when that delusion allows for a larger form of slavery to take place. That, you know, it's um, you know freedom to do what? Or... Right. Well, it's it's the the categories themselves masks the more complex power relations behind them, and it, maybe we can combat structural forms of power where you know, like slavery. You know, you can really get your head around that. But he's saying, you know, if even the lowest man can still kick a dog, then that pervasive sort of uh, power hierarchy is pretty impossible to combat. You know, so 
perhaps better we have an illusion than, you know, admit that everybody is, in a sense, a slave, and that slavery is, in, in, a, in that, from that view, impossible to eradicate. Well, and but I think I'm that it's not preference. That a good view. No, I see. I, yeah, I, I, I think that you're absolutely right, and I think that he's. This is his gesture in the king's court thing again. He's saying, between you and me, this is the truth. It's not a good thing. This is a freedom uh, masquerading. Wait, slavery masquerading is freedom, though. Yeah. Uh, we, if we, but we can't admit it. Also implied. You can't admit it. We don't admit it. If we did admit it, then we'd have all this suffering and anxiety, and we'd really have to rethink what we're all about. And that's what he's trying to get this man, us, whoever, to do, the, the yeah. people. Well, in doing that, though, that's what I'm wondering. Like, where does that leave us at? And where does action go from there? Screwed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that seems to be the conclusion you come to, right? I mean, I'm floundering for a response. Well, but I think I'm you could jump in the scene, that. right? You could you could jump in the river, and he doesn't do it, and that's what he's struggling with. And in a way, he's trying to get that back, and he's comfortable in the fact that, you know, fortunately, you can't go back and do it over again. You know, what if you really put your goodwill to the test? And said, "Well, you know, well, if I could just do all this, and you know, then I could change the world and make it a better place. But I can't, so I guess I won't." And I think that he's trying to charge in this character, possibly in the reader, uh, a sense of urgent obligation whenever the time like that comes again. I think that he would like to rewrite history through everyone that he's being heard by. He's showing out. Yeah, go ahead. You're just showing how, how proper introspection is really hard, if not, you know, tragic. <laughs> so he was forced into it with that, that scene, and he's showing all these other structures in the world that allow us to not properly introspect and realize how fallible and human we all are, right? Well, and also this ridiculous Jesus standard that we're, that he's holding himself to, because again, it means death. Jumping in the sun means death. So, you know, sure, I'll help. I'll help you across the street. I will get you off of this charge if you're an orphan or a widow. I will, I'll do all these things and I'll feel good about myself. But when it comes right down to it, no, I'm not going to die. And so what, what is this thing that we have held up in society that, that we're supposed to try and emulate? We're screwed. Well, There's no way. I'm not dying for it. You know, I'm not. I'm not jumping in the sand to save someone who's killing themselves. I'm not doing it. I think that's so, much more problematic, though, from, from the point in history where he's coming from. Because if you're coming right out of a World War II situation War II. where yeah. collaborators and your best friends you know, were making choices about whether the person next to them would live or die, I think that's a very imminent question then. And th this is at the heart of his conflict with Sartre, too. It's this conflict between an abstract sense of justice and these complex, concrete situations. Reality, make those situations. No, that's um, true. I hadn't actually, I hadn't, um, I hadn't actually considered that. But you're right. There's a quote from him about, well, so, okay, you know, Sartre has that, um, I don't know, I don't know what book it's in, but it's, he has that example of, 
Um, it's a famous existentialist example of where you know the boy who has to choose between going to war to fight for freedom and staying home to take care of his mother who's sick. And Sartre's point, to the extent that I understand it, there was that you know sometimes you have to just simply choose. You don't you don't have a right answer. You don't have guidance. You don't you're you're going to betray some sort of moral code, whichever choice you make. Um, but Camus, ironically, had a situation where that was actually sort of a concrete choice that he, he did have to make in his life because the Algerian um, independent state um, that was sort of uh, on the horizon um, when he was dealing with all of this, uh, he was su in support of, from what I understand, but he had said something to the effect um, in his... Uh, in or after his Nobel Prize speech um, to the extent of, you know, about terrorism when it comes to people bombing in the streets and things like that. If I have to choose between, you know, that sort of uh, violence for the greater good, even if it really is the greater good, and my mother getting hurt in one of those explosions, then I choose my mother. So he had to make that choice between a cause that he believed in and you know <laughs> his own family, and that was a real you know choice for him. And he was criticized heavily for saying that, from what I understand. But he was right. He was right because that's what most people would do. Yeah. I mean, he's talking about the reality, and 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 also I think it comes out here when he is discussing slavery too. That the fact is we can't. It, 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 you know, people are slaves, and they are, and not to go off text majorly or anything, but I saw this that film straight out of Compton recently, and I remember I was looking looking at it. Oh yeah, let's 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 apply the fall by Albert Camus to straight out of Compton, and we can actually. But um, but um, the one thing I just left there shaking my head, going, Jesus fuck, nothing's changed since Martin Luther King. Nothing has freaking changed since Rodney King in 1991. Nothing has changed. It's still happening today, you know. And 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 that's because there are still slaves out there. And it's it just is that. And he's right when he says that. Yeah, I'm gonna save my mom. Everybody's gonna save their mom before they save humanity. And that's just the way we are. And I think that's part of the big struggle of this book, the reality of the hum of the human. Of the human psyche, the human you know experience in and of themselves, versus what is all around them, the people jumping in the sand. Yeah, I mean it's yeah. it's it, the problem is that it that that that's who we are. It's the reality of who we are. I think you're absolutely right. But I take Mary's point too um, that, that it still may be an impossible standard if if living in a complex interwoven society where we're heavily populated and we have interest groups and people who are in deadly conflict. Um, it may be, maybe we are screwed. I don't know. I mean, I don't want to be cynical, but it may be impossible to hold us to that standard, even if it is the necessary standard. I don't think the Jesus standard is a necessary standard. I really don't. I don't think that people should expect themselves to be heroic in their everyday existence. I think that you help to to your ability and your comfort. I mean, could, otherwise you're just gonna, you know, you're gonna spend all your time in tears. 
I mean, if Jesus is questioning his life choices on the cross, well, you know what? Yeah. Right? <laughs> well, of course. Yeah. Thanks, Dad. Now what? <laughs> but that was Sartre's problem. He would, you know, I mean, that was, you know, can that stop the Nazis? Can can without violence for the greater good? Can you can you just do your best and stop the Nazis? You know, that was always his answer. It was no. You know, that uh, you know, <laughs> that's not going to cut it. You have to get your hands dirty. Yeah, and this is uh, 84. Um, this is He's talking about the jumper um, on the scene. From the evening when I was called, for I was really called, I had to answer, or at least seek an answer. It wasn't easy. For some time I floundered. To begin with, that perpetual laugh and the laughers had to teach me to see clearly within me and to discover at last that I was not simple. Don't smile. The truth is not so basic as it seems. What we call basic truths are simply the ones we discover after all the others. However that may be, after prolonged research on myself, I brought out the fundamental duplicity of the human being. And this is why the character uh, takes on his marquee as the Janus, the double face. He realizes that there is a struggle going on, and this is not... Uh, simple that there is at least it's not simple <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like that what he what he says after that then I realized as a result of delving in my memory that modesty helped me to shine humility to conquer and virtue to oppress I used to wage war by peaceful means and eventually used to achieve through disinterested means everything I desired so Oh, and I, and I love what he says just after this, just as like a, I've so felt this. I I, I was, I mean, I, I laugh not too loud because I was reading late at night and my roommate was asleep, but ah. he, he talks about uh, whenever it's his birthday and yes. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I mean, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll wear this. I totally do this. I just let my birthday go completely past, but only so that I can say whenever everyone's forgotten. I just wanted to be forgotten so that I could complain to myself. I was complain. <laughs> and also, there's another part that he says, and again, I'll wear this. He talks about um, uh, all of his friends and uh, and having this conflict that they don't care enough or whatever, and he wants to get revenge, and he has a fantasy that he could kill himself and then see everyone else react to it. And then he goes on. And then he goes on to think, well, if I did that, I would probably be. First of all, I couldn't. But if, but if he could, he would probably be disappointed with the reactions that he yeah. got. Yeah. 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 Because how did he react when you know when other people died? I love his stuff about the dead. I love his stuff about you know you love them because you have no obligation to them anymore. Yeah, that was really remember them. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, what what he say was uh, you know, the there's one. Th it's like I don't know a lot about relationships. This is paraphrasing, but the one thing that I do know to solve my relationship struggle would be if my partner died. Yeah, <laughs> because then I wouldn't have any obligation. They would be a romantic memory forever, and I could just uh go on from there. And then, but he mm -hmm. goes on to say like, so, you know, but you can't operate like that. You can't wish the depopulation of the world just to get to a state of life for yourself if you care about humanity or if you love your fellow man at all. And, and he 
and he does claim there a love of humankind. And and so at each turn, you know, I I feel like anyone who hasn't read this would would hear all these things and just think what a jerk. But that's <laughs> like, but it's kind of precisely the point because whenever that lingers with you, you're like, oh wait, oh okay, that's well, that's that's kind of me. I'm, I'm guilty. Yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and that's like that's the that's the good get of this entire story is this like oh I seduced you into listening to this confession which is actually a confession of man and and you can relate to it and it's like this big gotcha he got me at the end I was like oh man you you really lured me in and right. and now I can now I'm looking at myself and everyone else and humanity yeah, yeah. and I, and again I think it's important that he says this you know isn't the ideal and I've longed for another alternative and you know he says also that whenever he hears the laugh and this is the laugh that haunted him that reminded him of the woman jumping off the bridge uh, you know that he goes into doubt again and he has these intervals where he's really doubtful about um, the positions that he's taken up or the stances that he has and then he goes back into crushing someone else who's more covered up or more in the mesh, in the everydayness, and gets relief. Yeah, I agree. There's, there were so many little points in this uh, book that really got to me, just in, in the exact way that you're saying, um, because he's so penetrating in his analysis of the ways in which our altruistic motives are really actually selfish. And yeah, I mean that's that's really all I can say. But I don't think um, it reminded me a lot of notes from the underground. I mean, possibly because I've read yes, it absolutely. Yeah. I brought that comparison okay. up the other night. I was telling somebody I had this call coming up, and I loved it, and it was just as intense as notes from the underground. Yeah. I'm glad you said so. Mm. Yeah, that was really all I wanted to say. I'm glad you saw the same. Well, we're getting uh, to the end of the second hour here, and I wonder if there's lingering things out there that we haven't touched that we want to pull in. I don't know, Nathan. I was just enjoying that awkward silence. <laughs> <laughs> don't rush I'm into glad Somebody was. <laughs> um, I, you know, pretty much everything that I had highlighted or written down. People have, you know, we either I've talked about or someone else talked about. So, um, I liked what he, um, I liked a lot what he had to say about truth and lying. Um, I just, I loved, I really loved reading this. Really enjoyed it. Me too. I highlighted a bunch of passes and passages and just, you know, made a little note. Beautiful, like just about the writing. Yeah. He's on the Zyder Z with the guy, and uh, they're uh, in the boat, and it's so foggy that they can't tell that they're, you know, it's so foggy that they couldn't tell, the guy couldn't tell that they were going actually quite fast. And I thought that was a beautiful analogy about life. It goes by in a minute, mm. but things appear calm because of the fog. <laughs> Yay for fog. Yay for fog. It's really full of ideas. And I mean, I think it's part of the style. It's just a guy, you know, talking to you for 150 pages. So there's no, you know, 
two pages on what the scenery looks like. It's him just it's throwing, just talking. throwing everything out there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I really like the occasional little uh he would respond to someone talking but the but the other voice isn't in there. And so he, in the first section, at least, I think this was more prominent. In the last, he talks a little bit more like this. In the last, he's like, actually, would you help me up? I want to show you something. Thank you. And um, But in the beginning, you know, uh, there's one. Oh, that was cool. I just, I instinctively turned to just the right page. Um, he's uh, talking on, this is 36. He says, you see, not even the snow that was falling that day made me withdraw. What? Oh, I'm getting to it. Never fear. Besides, <laughs> I never left it. <laughs> you know, he's like, he's like, you think that I'm wandering here, uh, but I'm actually. This is all the point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the we didn't talk about the doves, and I think that that was a big. I think that no, that was a, a big part of it, but. Yeah, and another thing is, this is takes place in Amsterdam. If we're not, you know, not to. Not to ruin Cesare's point, which was well taken about the scenery and where they are, but. What, isn't that an issue that the wasn't that brought up about Dante, right? And and oh, the, cana- the canals in Amsterdam. Yeah, we're like the rings of hell. Right. I'm not sure. You know, I mean, I guess that that's that was a a a specific reason why he he placed this in Amsterdam, uh, unless that's where he was when he wrote this. I don't know. Yeah, and I think that he talked about Amsterdam in this way of being. So why is it like hell? Uh, he talked about right. a collection of people uh, coming there from all walks of life, and this was somehow a nexus. And he found himself wandering the streets and, you know, the circles and the canals, and and feeling like a, a lost soul. And right. you know, coming to Mexico City, this place of this bar uh, called Mexico City, you know, in this place of torment where people were, you know, drowning their sorrows and. Yeah, they're all exiles. He's exiled himself in there, and he's there with the exiles. Mm. And you almost see like this figure in limbo shouting out to everyone. (laughs) It's interesting the way that, I mean, Dante's been used as a framework for so many novels, but religion in general, I mean, I think it's part of the theme of the novel that it provides that framework for not just literature, but seeing the world and sets things up in an interpretable way. And that's probably one of the chief functions of it actually existing that aren't, uh, isn't all, always recognized, I think. And to abandon religion, um, I mean, we, we think we, some, or at least maybe sometimes I think of it as, you know, you're just abandoning these outdated forms of morality, but really, there's so much more to it. I mean, there's so much, uh, the Christian uh, narrative and framework, I mean, there's so much to our, uh, Laura posted the thing um, that talked about the metaphysics in our language and, you know, our, our ways of seeing the world and just interpreting everyday experience. I think that it's really complicated the ways in which all that is just so inextricable from our experience. And to move beyond it would be, much more complicated, I think, than we often recognize. And the Jesus in practice was a man that he highly sympathized with, not the Christian ideal, but the Jesus man um, struggling with the guilt that he had of being, you know, the one and and feeling that he was, you know, man incarnate and, and dealing with the same things that 
our narrator, Jean, felt that he was also this man going through life. And he had an incredible sympathy for that feeling. And and it was so important that he that he shouted out, you know, that he that's what that's what broke that's what breaks through that just that kind of glossy version of it. Uh, that this guy, I think Cesari said that you know he just went up on the cross and you know died and was happy for it. it. It's more complicated than that, and that complexity is what he feels he's continuing as a human being, as a man, in the world uh, still. Yeah, mm. you can't just put it down to following some laws. You have to live your life. Good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still alive. <laughs> I've had some luck. It's uh it doesn't it doesn't seem like it gets easier for him once he makes this big, you know, introspective discovery though. There's no sort of light at the end of the tunnel, it doesn't seem to me. No, he yeah. just does the same thing over and over. He keeps going back to Mexico City. He's yeah, it's just running he just wears his experiment. It. Yeah, he's just open with what his intentions are now. But uh yeah, that's what that's what limbo was, right? I mean, it's just eternal, you know. You virtuous pagans, <laughs> guys, but you just came too soon, so <laughs> too bad. You're gonna stay here forever. That's right. <laughs> Did anybody? I thought this was. I really enjoyed this a lot more than the stranger. I have to say, I, or other writings I've read of his, the stranger's the only other work of fiction. And I've read the myth of Sisyphus, but right. I just thought this was a lot more elegant as a work of literature. I hear it's one of his least understood, you know, pieces. Yeah. Not that any of it's understood, but I'm just saying. I've heard it's, uh, of everything he's written, it's his least understood. Interesting. And it's his last. I mean, did he how, did he die not long after this was published? Four years later. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, I could see that because I mean it's extremely complicated. Yeah, very. Makes for a good conversation. <laughs> yeah, I, I love this book. I've never read anything else by Camus. I've got on maybe a dozen notepads the myth of Sisyphus written down. I've heard it time and time again, and the idea of the story itself is interesting to me, um, or mm. the idea of Sisyphus. Um, but this is the only one I've read. I've not read The Stranger, even though I know it's you know high school one hundred and one stuff. Um, yeah. Oops. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I like this as well. I've read uh, The Stranger and the Plague, which I, I also liked. But, uh, this is good. I haven't read Camus in a while. Mm. But the uh, Sisyphus was hard to get through, though, for me. Yeah. <laughs> but it seemed like he maybe reformed a little bit of that philosophy in this book when he was talking about suicide. Um in a much more digestible way. I don't know. It see, I agree, totally agree with you. He seemed like a... I mean, you've, I've always heard that he's a much better literary writer than a philosophical writer, and I definitely would agree with that sentiment. I, I found the myth of Sisyphus hard to get through as well, and he's just so much more eloquent when he's writing fiction. Yeah, and there's, a, there's one line. It's funny, I got this book secondhand. I thought I was getting it like new, um, but there's highlights from it, and I'm mm -hmm. sure you all understand the relationship with highlights. It's, yeah. it's weird. 
look into someone else's. And whenever you you see what they highlight, and then it there's times whenever it really marks out your own thinking. And a, anyhow, and it, it just happens that this is uh, this is interested in me and then the mysterious reader who had the book before me. But he's talking about people and his practice of being the judge penitent. This is on 140. It's nearly the end. He says, I am like them, to be sure. We are in the soup together. However, I have a superiority in that I know it, and this gives me the right to speak. You see the advantage, I am sure. The more I accuse myself, the more I have a right to judge you. Even better, I provoke you into judging yourself, and this relieves me of that much of the burden. Ah, my friend, we are odd, wretched creatures, and if we merely look back over our lives, there's no lack of occasions to amaze and horrify ourselves. Just try. I shall listen, you may be sure, to your own confession with a great feeling of fraternity. And that great feeling of fraternity is, I think, what he's connecting back to Jesus and to the every man that he speaks to at Mexico City. Really pretty writing. Yes. <laughs> uh, one more. Just uh, a couple of lines after. He's talking about this trick and how it works with people. But with the intelligent ones, it takes time. It takes time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Huh. But they'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> you got to woo them. <laughs> well, we're jumping this in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. There's an option. Yeah. I was imagining when... Uh, he was talking about, you know, he's a like a pro bono lawyer who takes on, you know, clients for free and works for the poor. And then he let this uh, person die in the river. I just imagine like a Fox News, like socialist lawyer. Let's oh, child. Donald <laughs> 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 would be right on this end. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> and they want to mark out all this hypocrisy, right? But that's the core of the book. Yeah. This, uh, this idea of hypocrisy. Yeah, it is yeah. kind of the core. And and yeah. it's the core of Christianity as well. Mm -hmm. um, I was just thinking that, you know, how uh, how Seth has his little no-Nazi talk rule. I think right. that we should institute a no-Trump rule. Oh. <laughs> it's going to be a long election and I can't take it. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. All right. No-Nazi rule, no-Trump rule. Okay. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.